a lush green field, its blades of grass gently swaying in the breeze. Chirps of birds and crickets echo in the distance. The calm, serene setting is interrupted by a speeding van, swerving as it zips over the grass, bouncing over every little hill and valley it encounters. A good distance behind the van, a swarm of police vehicles chase after, sirens wailing as they bounce along the same hills and valleys in unison. The van takes a sharp right onto a highway, picking up speed as it veers in and out of lanes, barely missing vehicle bumpers. Drivers honk and tires screech as they swerve out of the way. The squad cars follow, keeping a safe distance. The van makes a kamikaze zip diagonally across all lanes to take an off-ramp. Random vehicles collide or near miss. Some squad cars get caught in the chaos. Others successfully veer through the vehicular maze, continuing their pursuit down the off-ramp. Moments later, the van sits, empty and haphazardly, across the lawn of an abandoned shack in a field on the outskirts of town. Police sirens grow louder as they approach. The squad cars arrive and surround the shack. Officers exit their vehicles, guns drawn. The van driver, a chunky, balding brute, peeks through one of the shack's boarded windows, smiles, and moves away. An officer raises his CB, speaks into it. 15, this is 2A25. We have a 417 surrounded at 18 Briarsfield Road. Over. The voice of FBI agent Eli Brubaker crackles through the CB. Inhabitants. Unclear. Collateral damage. The officer looks around, suspicious of the question. Minimal. Proceed with the burner. The officer is caught off guard by the command, but does not hesitate. Understood. The officer gestures to his partner. Light it up. Copy that. Minutes later, behind a SWAT van, the SWAT lead prepares a drone. He flips a switch on a remote in his hand and the drone takes off, buzzing along in the shack's direction. Once it reaches the shack, the drone ejects a liquid from a side compartment. The liquid sprays out as the drone circles the house, splattering against all four sides. Initiating. The SWAT lead presses a button on the remote, when suddenly... A gunshot emanates from the shack and the drone drops to the ground, just as it emits a stream of fire toward the bottom of the shack. The house ignites and is soon covered in flames. Officers shield themselves from the heat as they watch the house burn. Warped hardwood floors and withered support beams signifying a house are all that remain. Smoke still billows from the remnants as a team of individuals in hazmat suits push their way through firemen who are snuffing out whatever's left smoldering. The hazmat group enters the house's remains. One of them removes his headgear to reveal FBI agent Eli Brubaker, 40, lean and intense, who searches the rubble. Nobody to be found. Brubaker looks to the others in the group, then walks the length of the house as he thinks. His footsteps all sound similar, until he steps on a particular plank. When it emits a hollow sound, Brubaker stops. He backs up, steps on it again. He gets on his knees, sweeps the debris from the plank and jars it loose. He pulls on the plank, which reveals itself to be a trap door. He opens it to find a ladder, which descends into a dark tunnel. Brubaker dips his head in, searching helplessly and growing frustrated. The others in the hazmat group gather over his shoulder. Shit! 
He yells as he slams the door shut. Chapter 1. Public Diplomacy In her L.A. apartment, Claudia Vasquez, early 30s with a soldier's physique and laser focus, completes a set of push-ups in her living room, works a punching bag in her garage, and hangs upside down from a pull-up bar, completing a set of ab crunches in an archway. One of her ankles is fixed with an ankle monitor. Jolene Joe Pellicci, mid-40s with a cold steel stare and the business attire to match it, pays Claudia a visit. She unlocks the ankle monitor and removes it. Claudia smiles upon its release. Joe's response? A reluctant sneer. In a residential neighborhood across town, Officer Sam Pierce, late 30s with a devilish charm undermined by a cocky vanity, pulls a half-dressed husband out of his house in handcuffs towards his squad car. The wife follows them, berating and slapping her cuffed husband along the way. Sam's seasoned partner, Officer Mac Devlin, 40s, angry and jaded, grabs the wife's hands, blocking her blows. Sam yells to his partner over the chaos. Hey, is this some of that marital bliss I'm missing out on? Your mileage may vary. All right, ma'am, that's enough. Knock it off. Get back. In an office building downtown, Martin Chen, late 20s, hot-headed and eager to close deals in his three-piece suit and tie, stands behind his office desk overlooking the skyline. An AirPod is lodged in one ear as he chats up a client on the phone. His smile reveals they're buying whatever Martin is peddling. You're gonna love this. I think it's just the sort of investment you're looking for. His phone vibrates on the desk behind him. He reads the display. Angela. Martin observes it for a moment before turning his attention back to the skyline. Is it a risk? Everything's a risk, Arthur. It's all a matter of calculation. A hole-in-the-wall tavern by the beach just opening up. Late afternoon sun rays peek through the drawn curtains. Only a couple of regulars are up at the bar this time of day. In one of the few booths in the place, Frank Cole, 30s but scruffy-bearded and disheveled enough to look 50, slouches in his seat, lingering over a glass of water. His attention is focused on a news story which plays on a TV behind the bar, the volume down. On the screen, a reporter speaks as a photo of a black 17-year-old boy hovers over her shoulder. The name Josiah Mickelson appears beneath him. Captain Robert Orson, 50s, cropped gray hair, dignified and determined, enters the bar decked out in his police uniform. He nods at the bartender and scans the room. He finds Frank and joins him in the booth. Both watch the tube for a moment. The bartender approaches. What can I get you? Orson looks to Frank and says, What are you drinking? I don't drink anymore. Then why the hell are we at a bar? Whiskey on the rocks. Be generous with the poor, will ya? The bartender moves off. Orson inches closer to Frank, speaking in confidence. This is a real shit show, Frank. Nut job slips through the Fed's fingers at every turn. Any leads? Frank sips his water. Days, weeks, months, nothing. Then, well, that's why I'm here. You can help stop this. Frank nearly choked. <laughs> and here I thought you were concerned for my well-being. 
I'm never coming back. I'm not asking. The DA is. And the mayor, the governor. We could be looking at a national emergency. Who does this guy take out? Soon? Thousands. Orson gives Frank a look of dire desperation. Frank is lost in that, perplexed by Orson's cryptic answers. What makes you think I can help? Because he asked for you. Frank is thrown for a loop. The bartender returns with the drink. Orson grabs it from her before it even hits the table, gulps it down, and hands her back the glass. She takes it, gives him a look, and goes. Orson rises and drops some money on the table. Come on, they're waiting. They who? Captain, I don't understand. You will. Please, Frank. This is the closest we've ever been. Orson tugs Frank's elbow. Frank relents, but remains wary. A federal building downtown. Frank steps out of an elevator and walks the length of a hallway. Through office windows, he sees officers at their desks, rushing off to a job or meeting in conference rooms. Those who pass Frank in the hallway give him double takes, each one starting with shock and landing on sympathy. Others who notice him start whispering to one another. Frank ignores it all and presses on. One officer pats him on the back as he passes. Welcome back, sir. Frank nods a thank you. He enters a room at the end of the hallway. The room is barely furnished. Several random chairs are strewn about. A filing cabinet collects dust in a corner. The plastic window blinds crumpled from years of neglect. At one of the windows, Claudia sits and peeks through a set of blinds as if on a stakeout. She takes a moment to size Frank up, then returns her attention to the window. Sam paces the room, fidgeting with a vape pen. He approaches Frank before he can even finish closing the door behind him. Damn, how many of us are there? Frank shrugs half-heartedly. Sam yanks his hand into a shake, wholeheartedly. Officer Sam Pierce. Gotta warn you, brother. I'm the spotlight's bitch. Soon as those cameras get a load of me, can't promise there'll be enough fame left to go around. Sam speaks that last line in Claudia's direction and gives her a wink. Claudia rolls her eyes and returns her attention to the window. Cameras? We're going to be heroes, baby. Determined, selfless purveyors of the law who band together to save countless lives in the face of pure evil. That story writes itself. The tenacious trio, huh? How's that sound? Their attention is taken by the sound of a muffled voice emanating from the hallway, which grows closer. The door slams open and a burly officer enters, thrusting Martin into the room and slamming the door behind him. Martin rises and dusts himself off as he shouts at the closed door. This is unconstitutional, you hear me? I have your badge, pal! Sam looks to Frank in bewilderment. Make that the... fearless foursome? Martin slows his breathing and looks between Frank, Sam, and Claudia, skeptical. Who are you? Answer me and, and, and save yourself some jail time. Easy stretch. We're all caged animals here. I don't believe you. I get dragged here against my will. Maybe I was dragged here to get jumped. If we did, it'd be to shut your ass up. See? Who's that? What is she gonna do? Hey! Frank's voice shakes the room to complete silence. Even Claudia's full attention is taken. Sam's vape pen dangles from his mouth unattended. Frank approaches Martin as he continues. I don't know who you are, 
but there's a terrorist out there. This guy's untraceable, and he poses some sort of imminent threat. The only ones who can do anything about it are in this room. Now that you know as much as we do, you gonna sit down, or are you gonna lie down? Martin backs cautiously into a chair. I'm Martin Chen. Orson rushes in, followed by Agent Brubaker and Brubaker's assistant, a bespectacled young man with a laptop carry-on adorning his shoulder, who wheels in a computer monitor. Mr. Chen, you're awake. A bit more receptive to information this time around, I hope. Martin rubs his head, remembering. A montage of black and white photos appear on the monitor. Soldiers in fatigues, nuclear bomb components, a world map indicating Chechnya, and close-ups of four metal suitcases. Brubaker stands beside the monitor as he addresses the group. Earlier this year, a group of CIA operatives were conducting an act of public diplomacy involving a nuclear arms deal with Chechnyan militants. A tracking device was embedded in each of the four suitcases with the intent of leading us to their compound. Soon after the cases were exchanged, their signals died. The material has been lost without a trace ever since. Needless to say, this is a highly volatile situation and an international crisis. We've had no lead for months. Then, a few hours ago, this. The screen goes black and is replaced by an audio wave signal, which vibrates as a voice begins to speak. There is a sickness in this country. Perhaps it's always been here, festering beneath the surface. We know we need to cure it, but it's systemic. There's no one place to start. So we start nowhere. Well, I'm starting somewhere. Their photos appear as the voice calls them out one by one. Samuel Pierce. Claudia Vasquez. Martin Chen. Franklin Cole. Each of you are far guiltier than I'll ever be. Yet somehow... You get to live, free of repercussions, absolved of any responsibility. What makes you so special? What elevates you above justice? Frank bows his head. Sam's sneer turns inquisitive. Claudia shows mild concern. Martin is a nervous wreck. At six tomorrow evening, each of you will stand trial. A live national trial by a jury of your peers, and we will reveal your secrets for all the world to see. The room is gripped in genuine worry as if each knows precisely to what the voice refers, except Claudia. Orson and Brubaker look over their faces for clues. There are explosive devices buried in four locations across this great nation of ours. One in each of your names. You try to run. It goes off. You play ball. It doesn't. Each of you will have saved thousands and thousands of lives. But your lives, as you've known them, will come to an end. The audio wave flatlines as the feed goes out. Brubaker hovers above the group like a teacher in charge of detention. Talk to me. How does he know you? Silence around the room. 
Frank Martin and Sam avoid eye contact. Their eyes bury secrets deep down. I have no idea. You don't have to answer any of his questions. None of us do. This is a violation of our Miranda rights. Enough out of you, Chen. No, this is absurd. I'm not kowtowing to some anonymous troll over baseless claims. You okay with thousands of deaths on your hands? Another baseless claim. Hey, I'm going to blow the Taj Mahal. Wire me a million dollars and I won't. Give me a break. That's not a risk the agency's going to take. Serial numbers on the cases match our records. Sam thinks that one over. Proof that he can is proof that he could. This is crazy. I'm not ruining my life for this government screw-up. You will be hearing from my lawyer. Martin gets up and straightens his suit and tie before marching out of the room. Brubaker leans into his assistant's ear. Keep a tail on him. The assistant nods and follows after Martin. Orson focuses on Frank. Come on, kid. Help us bring this guy in. What do you think he's got on you? What if he doesn't stop? Yeah. We put our shit out there, ruin our reputation, and this nut keeps running? Where does that leave us? You could ruin jobs, lives, families. Thought you wanted to be a hero, fearless. Where's your cape now? Sam shoots Claudia a look. The Bureau acknowledges what's at stake. They're prepared to provide you all safety nets, whatever that may entail. Employment, a pardon, relocation, witness protection. But make no mistake, he has to be stopped. And we have to stop him. So the government accidentally arms a terrorist cell and is using our lives to clean up their mess? No one said this is fair. With your help, maybe we'll get lucky and track his location in time. But every second you fail to cooperate with what you know hinders that. I'm with them, Captain. This nut must have drawn our names out of a hat. I mean, if you're asking if I got enemies, name one beat cop who doesn't. Brubaker gives them all a once-over, before nodding reluctant acceptance. Fine. See you in 24 hours. You think of anything before you let me know. Every second counts. And please, don't try to run. If blood ends up on your hands, you'll be running forever. Sam hits the vape pen. Claudia pulls her hoodie over her head and walks out, a hardened poker face. Frank sits in a daze. Frank unlocks his apartment door and enters. He flicks a light switch, revealing the ultimate pigsty of a bachelor pad. Empty TV dinners are piled on a foldable dinner stand. Clothes are strewn about the couch and armchair. Frank drops his keys onto a nightstand. On that nightstand are three framed photos. In one photo, Frank is marrying Nora Cole, a young, beautiful, happy couple. In the second photo, a young, clean-cut Frank is being awarded a medal by Captain Orson. The third photo is face down. Frank moves some clothes out of the way, plops onto the couch and lets out a deep sigh. He looks down at the coffee table before him and the lone glass of water that occupies it. Claudia spends her evening at an indoor shooting range and at this late hour is the lone occupant. She wears earmuffs while she takes aim and fires at a shooting target. All shots hit the target's head and chest. Her face is cold. Fearless. She presses a buzzer. The paper target moves on cue, inching closer and closer. As soon as it reaches her, Claudia raises her gun and pumps one final round in the center of the target's head. Good lord, Claudia. Gus, a portly, stubbly-bearded fellow in his 70s and owner of this range, puts on his coat as he leans in the doorway. 
Claudia turned slightly to acknowledge him before unloading and locking her gun. Shutting nine and ten. You know you got laid more. Maybe you wouldn't be so damn hostile. Is that why your wife is such a bitch? <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Good night, hon. Gus leaves. Claudia studies the target with determination before ripping it from its post. Sam paces back and forth on his apartment rooftop. A phone is nestled between his shoulder and ear. He reaches for a pack of cigarettes, which sits on a table next to his vape pen. He lights a cigarette and takes a puff as the voice of his partner's wife, Cheryl Devlin, chirps into his ear. Hey, Sam. Mac's not around. Um, maybe he's pulling a double. Want me to give him a message? Sam takes a beat, looks out over the cityscape, searching the darkness for an answer. No, I'm sure he's just on a call or something. Everything all right? Sure. Just, you know, long night. Kiss the babies for me, will ya? You bet. Night, Sam. Sam hangs up, takes another drag of the cigarette, and slowly exhales. In his bathroom, Sam leans into his sink and splashes water on his face. <sighs> calming his nerves. I can't. He pulls his head from the sink and whips around. Searching the room for that voice, panicked. It's gone now. He breathes a sigh of relief, but is shaken nonetheless. Martin dines with Albert O'Malley, his suave, 40-ish, slick personal attorney. Albert seems more concerned with his meal than Martin's plight. Martin, too nervous to eat, cannot sit still. So? So what? I mean... What are my options here? Go against the United States government versus a little embarrassment on the world stage to save lives? You tell me. They have no right to pry into my personal life. Doesn't this qualify as some sort of unlawful order? Marty, what is it? You hire a gay escort. Did some meth? Did meth with a gay escort? (laughs) This isn't a joke. It's my goddamn life. Take it easy. All self-incrimination will be erased. FBI's waiver looks legit. What if it's just a soft target, like a nursing home or a homeless shelter? I mean, it's not like the guy below the Pentagon. Can you imagine trying to live your life in peace after killing everyone's grandma? I am not doing anything. I haven't... Who is this guy? That's what this should be about. I got nothing to do with this. It's okay, Marty. Whatever it is... Whatever you've done, you'll move past it, and you'll be a savior. Martin shakes his head. His eyes grow distant. I want to live my life. You can't just barge in and take it from me. Talk to me, Marty. Attorney-client privilege. What have you done? How bad can it be? Martin rises, almost zombie-like in his despair and walks off. Albert yells after him. Are we done? Don't worry, it's on me. The next morning, Claudia parks in the driveway of a two-story house at the end of a cul-de-sac. She turns off the ignition and takes a moment to breathe deep. She looks to the front door, then adjusts her rearview mirror. She withdraws a makeup kit from her purse, finds the lipstick, and applies it. Halfway through, she stops and studies herself. 
Her reflection gives her a hard time. A banging is heard. Claudia looks toward the house. Emma, seven years old and ready to jump out of her skin with excitement, bangs on the living room window. She waves wildly at Claudia with a grin. Emma's yell is faintly audible through the window. Claudia waves back. She smiles slightly. The first real emotion she's shown. The front door opens. Harold Vasquez, bearded, late thirties with a professorial tweed jacket and glasses, looks Claudia up and down as she stands in the doorway. She wears a blouse and slacks, worlds apart from her hooded jacket and jeans look. Ah, you found the grown-up closet. Claudia feigns a smile. He returns it and gives her a hug, which she reciprocates with trepidation. Harold looks her up and down, concerned. How are things? Things are. A silence passes between them. Emma started ballet practice about a month ago. He withdraws his phone from his pocket, scrolls through pictures, then stops and hands Claudia the phone. Claudia scrolls, pride and adoration crossing her face with every pic. In the first pic, Emma is in a tutu, attempting her first pirouette. In the second, she's grinning ear to ear, hugging her ballet teacher. In the last one, Emma's fingers hold bunny ears behind Harold's head. Claudia smiles. She got you. Yeah, she's a sly one. It's moments like those that I see you and her the most. She shoots him a look that says, don't even try it. Oh, how long before I scroll into one of your dick pics? Claudia! Harold thinks for a moment, then yanks the phone away, remembering. Wait, give me that. Joe approaches from a hallway, stern as ever, badge on her hip, and gives Claudia a once-over. Claudia? Joe? Joe moves between Harold and Claudia. Harold shifts uncomfortably. He hates this part. Arms up. Claudia doesn't budge. Don't make me beg. She and Claudia hold a menacing stare before Claudia slowly raises her arms. Joe pats her down, starting with her upper body. She opens her purse and inspects it, then starts patting the rest of her down, all at a deliberately slow pace. Claudia looks from Joe to an empty staircase behind them, anxious. Can you hurry up before she comes back down? She's got to get used to it sooner or later. Claudia's eyes shoot daggers at Joe. Emma descends the stairs with a backpack. She stops halfway and looks to her mom being patted down. Her mood sours a little. Claudia's eyes lock onto Emma's, then averts them in shame. Joe completes her inspection and stands. She turns to see Emma on the stairs, clutching her backpack, then looks between the two. All good. Ready, Emma? Emma nods and descends the remaining steps. Claudia glares at Joe. And Joe returns it. In an elementary school faculty lounge, Nora Cole sits among a group of teachers watching the news. The queen of multitasking, Nora oscillates between grading papers, stealing glances at the TV, and devouring her sandwich. On the news, the photo of Josiah Mickelson again appears in the corner of the screen behind the news anchor as she speaks. Beneath his photo reads, Black teen shot dead by police. The investigation continues into the officer-involved shooting death of Josiah Mickelson. His mother, Rashonda Mickelson, held a press conference earlier today. Take a look. 
flanked by her lawyers at the top of a set of courthouse steps. Rashonda Mickelson, 40, strong in her resilience, but harboring a shattered heart, stands before an array of microphones. With a trembling hand, she raises a framed picture of Josiah as she speaks. One month ago today, my little boy was taken from me. Today, his killer is free. But I'll never be free. Never. My little boy. My little boy. Frank enters the lounge. The teachers react in awe and surprise. Handshakes, hugs, and pats on the back are offered. Frank. Frank. How you holding up? You look good. Hey, buddy. Really good. Long time no see. Frank approaches Nora. Slow day, huh? That was my little boy. Poor woman. He's mine. I know she still wakes up in the morning and for a split second believes he's still there. I will will not not rest. rest. And my boy will not rest until justice is served. Can you give me a moment? Moment is all I got. Frank helps Nora pack her papers into her shoulder bag as they exit. As the anchor continues, the program cuts to a shot of the courthouse doors, where Sam and his partner, Mac Devlin, in suits and ties and accompanied by fellow officers Milo Guzman and Larry Pope, Fend off reporters as they exit the courthouse. The three other officers at the scene have corroborated Officer McDelvin's claim that the victim tried to pull the officer's gun and he feared for his life. All four officers have been cleared of any wrongdoing. In the school library, Nora sits at a table, bewildered. Frank paces before her. What does he want with you? Frank shrugs. Orson have any leads? If the call lasts long enough to track. He passes the table again, but Nora takes his hand this time, stopping him in his tracks. Haven't we been through enough? Is there anything you haven't told me? Anything that I don't know? Something eats at Frank, longing to get out. But he offers a head shake instead. You sure? We were married ten years, Nora. My secrets are your secrets. Nora accepts that. She rises and pulls him into a hug. Frank's eyes shut tight on her embrace. When they pull away, he slowly moves in for a kiss. She stops him with a hand to his chest and presses her forehead against his instead. After a few moments, Nora breaks the embrace and makes her way to the exit. She stops at the door and turns to him. Bring him down, Frank. You deserve to be a hero again. She slips out the door. Frank drops the facade. Worry and shame now take hold. After an evening spent at the office, Martin pulls his car to a stop in front of his house to find his front lawn swarming with reporters and cameras. His nervous sweats force him to loosen his tie. The press barely give him enough room to open his door and wriggle out of his vehicle. He squeezes his way through them, briefcase in hand, 
making his way to his front Mr. door. Chen. Mr. Chen. Mr. Chen. Mr. Chen. Mr. Chen. Mr. Chen. What sort of secret is this mysterious voice going to reveal about you? Mr. Chen. Mr. Chen. Is it something you are personally guilty of, Mr. Chen? Excuse me, Mr. Chen. How do you know each other? I have no knowledge of having ever met or otherwise made contact with terrorists. Any idea why you're being targeted, Mr. Chen? No. But after this unfortunate ordeal is resolved, I expect to be fully exonerated. I will seek the proper legal action thereafter, and my family and I will try to get back to some sense of normalcy. Please respect our privacy at this time. Martin unlocks his door and slams it shut on the press, who continue lobbing their questions. Mr. Chen. Mr. Chen. Upon his entrance, Angela Chen, early 20s, fragile yet curious, rushes into Martin's arms. Their six-year-old son, Miles, quiet but attentive, lingers by the window, peeking at the madness. Marty, I don't understand. I don't either, but I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I promise. Martin holds Angela's face up to meet his. She closes her eyes against her tears and nods at her husband. He kisses her forehead, then gestures to his son. Miles, come get away from the window. Miles regards him, expressionless for a moment, before running out of the room. Miles! He'll be all right. What do they think you did? No idea. Trust me, tomorrow, this will all be over. Martin pulls Angela into one more embrace. Her face away from his, the grimace he's been holding in becomes much more evident. It disappears as soon as the embrace ends and they're once again face to face. I'll heat up dinner. No, I'm going to head up to the study, get some work done. You're not hungry? Al and I grabbed a late lunch. Angela straightens up at the mention of that name. My father can get you a real lawyer. He is a real lawyer, Angela. Relax. He'll take care of this. Martin hurries up the steps, leaving Angela to her concern. Martin enters his home office and walks the length of the room, uncertain of which direction to go. He messily pours a drink from a liquor cart. His hand shakes as he downs the drink and makes another. And another. He swallows the last one, puts down the glass. He closes his eyes tight for a few seconds, then opens them slowly, having made a decision. He approaches his desk. His eyes zero in on a laptop. Martin studies it for a moment before reaching for the edge of the laptop and nudging it across the desk, then nudging it a little further. He continues pushing it closer, closer to the edge of the desk until reaching the tipping point. The laptop drops to the floor with a thud. In a city park, joggers and cyclists breeze by. Friends converse on park benches. Claudia holds Emma's hand as they walk down a path. Joe trails behind them, just out of earshot. Emma swings her held hand as she skips. But then at recess, Sarah called me stupid. She did, huh? Well, next time Sarah calls you that, you tell her you know how to make her go to sleep. Remember that neck pinch I showed you? Emma nods, all smiles. When are you coming home, Mommy? Not sure yet, little bean. Is it still because you hurt that man? It sure is. Even though he hurt you first? Claudia stops walking. Joe follows suit. Can, can you give us a moment? I'm giving you four hours of moments. Alone, Joe. I'm not going to hurt my own daughter. Neither of us knows what you're capable of. Claudia cuts her eyes from Joe in frustration, 
and focuses back on Emma, kneeling to her level. Listen, Bean. Sometimes doing the right thing can also be the wrong thing. Emma looks confused. That doesn't make sense. No, Emma, it doesn't. Claudia rises and continues walking hand in hand with Emma. Joe follows. But after tomorrow, when Mommy does this thing on TV, we'll be together again before you know it. Emma's mood brightens. Behind them, Joe rolls her eyes. Something over Claudia's shoulder grabs Emma's attention. Claudia notices and turns to see a horde of reporters and camera operators searching around as if tipped that Claudia was in the area. Here comes your 15 minutes. Emma's enthralled. Are you famous, Mommy? Yeah. Disgusting, isn't it? Claudia searches around her for an escape route. Joe nods in the direction of a pathway, just as the reporters spot them. Joe leads the way. Claudia pulls Emma by the hand as they follow. As news outlets break the story, the media circus begins. The Voices recording soon plays in every living room across the country. As it does, Martin works frantically in his home office to dismantle his laptop, disassemble a burner phone, stomp a hard drive into pieces, and dump files into a paper shredder. Each of you will have saved thousands and thousands of lives. But your lives, as you've known them, will come to an end. The recording was discovered by the FBI overnight and leaked to news outlets in the early morning hours. Sources say the suspect has pinpointed four apparently random individuals to stand trial. The trial of public opinion, that is. Little is known about these four citizens at the moment, but each may be withholding sensitive information that, we're told, while personally damaging to each of them, will thwart attacks that could claim the lives of thousands. Joe hurriedly drives, stealing glances at the rear view as the media runs after her car. Claudia sits and stews in the back seat next to Emma, who's turned toward the back window, giddily waving at the pursuing reporters. Just what sort of secrets could these four apparent strangers be hiding? Frank sits on his couch, watching it all unfold on his TV. The curtains are drawn all around him, but the media can still be seen milling around the house, peeking through windows. He sits, as always, with a glass of water in front of him. But this time, it's accompanied by a gun. Frank looks desperately from one to the other. No word yet on what sort of information that may be, or if the suspect's vendetta is a personal one. Steam drifts through a police locker room as Sam walks down one row of lockers and up another, searching. He rounds a corner and nearly bumps into officers Larry Pope and Milo Guzman. Pope throws his hands up to stop the collision as he speaks. Easy there, Sammy. Hey, Pope. You seen Mac around? I was gonna ask the same thing. Things he can dodge the hundred he owes me from last night's game? He better think again. Sam attempts to move past them, but Pope stands in his way. Whoa. What's the hurry? A lot going on. Tell me about it. Looks like you're about to be a real hero out there. Another day in the life, right? Pope gets close to Sam. What's he at? You know? None of us do. And I never met those other people before. I got no idea what's going on. You have to have an idea. It's your life. You know what you've done with it. 
Pope's voice goes grave as he drives the point home. Mac was just doing his job. And so were we. And so were you. I don't need a coach, but I appreciate the sentiment. Sam withdraws his vape pen as he moves toward the exit. Still having visions? Sam stops cold. How did they know? Guzman imitates a choking sound, and he and Pope share a laugh, (laughs) relishing in Sam's confusion. Pope moves in, close to Sam again. (sighs) This is a tight-knit precinct, Sam. Very few secrets, even in occupations sworn to protect them. We're watching this terrorist shit, you hear me? And if our names come up at all on this, visions will be the least of your problems. Pope pats Sam's shoulder. Be safe out there. As he and Guzman exit the locker room. Sam drinks himself sober at a dimly lit neighborhood bar. Yeah, just give me another. A bartender approaches and refills his shot glass. Sam takes the shot, then stares into the empty glass as he reflects. Susie asked me the other day, where Sam's wife? I said, Sammy ain't got a wife, sweetie. Oh, boy. She says, why not, Daddy? I said, I don't know. You should ask him next time he's over. Mac's voice puts a smile on Sam's face. Sam drives his squad car as Mac rides shotgun. Sam feigns being emotionally wrecked as Mac laughs at his predicament. (laughs) Really, Mac? What was I supposed to say? Make something up. I'm not going to lie to my own kid, dude. Not even for you. Some partner you are. Hmm. Cheryl's got a sister. She's single. I know. We busted her boyfriend last month, remember? That's right. It's a low bar. I don't limbo. You're above people with baggage. Ladies, get your shit together. This is a perfect specimen of drama-free beefcake here. Up yours. Up ahead, Sam and Max spot Officer Pope standing by the driver's side window of a BMW conversing with the passenger. Behind the BMW sits Pope's squad car, and Officer Guzman occupies the passenger seat, scrolling through his phone. Look at these two dickwads. Sit tight. Sam pulls up behind the squad car. Matt gets out and approaches Guzman. Sam glances casually between Pope, inspecting a license and registration, and Matt goosing Guzman from behind his door, and the two sharing a laugh. Matt hangs over Guzman's shoulder, sneaking peeks at his phone. What are you stroking it to over here? Picture mother sent me. Yeah, right. She just needs you to mow the lawn. I'll mow her lawn, all right. What you got? Some spook ran up stop sign. You won't believe the owner. Some rapper? Aren't they all? Mac nods agreement before moving off toward Pope. Pope leaves the driver's side of the BMW and meets Mac halfway. This is a 2021 3 Series BMW G20. Costs more than my goddamn house. Belongs to, get this, Army Mickelson. No shit. None whatsoever. Mac looks over Pope's shoulder. Through the BMW side view mirror, he sees a nervous, sweaty Josiah Mickelson, shifting uncomfortably in his seat. Pope offers Mac a smirk. Wanna have some fun? Josiah squirms in the driver's seat. Bright, swirling police lights illuminate his car from behind. He constantly checks his rear view. 
In the passenger seat, his phone vibrates and the name Mom appears on the display. Josiah reaches for the phone. Easy, homeboy. Pope appears at Josiah's window, one hand hovering above his holster. Whoever it is, ain't worth it. Hands on the wheel. He's accompanied this time by Mac, who now holds Josiah's driver's license, pretending to study it. Josiah Mickelson, all right? Josiah nods. Speak up, son. Yes, sir. Hmm. Mickelson. Mickelson. Why does that name sound familiar? Now that does ring a bell. You wouldn't be related to an Armstrong Mickelson, would you? Josiah nods again, then thinks better of it and provides a vocal response. Yes, sir. He's my father, sir. Isn't that something? Well then, this is an honor. Your old man's a big deal down at the precinct. Did you know that? No, sir. Oh, yeah. Seems like every other day he's bringing cases against a fellow police officer, seeking damages for some petty street thug's Fourth Amendment violation. Taking good cops off the street. Cops with families to feed. But you know what the best part of this is? All his talk of following the law, he doesn't even know when to get a broken taillight replaced. (laughs) Mac gestures toward the back of the car. Josiah's breathing quickens a little. The phone vibrates again, startling Josiah. His sudden move causes Pope to grip his gun. I have to answer that. Don't you move. It's my mother. I don't care if it's God himself. Get out of the car. Mac opens the door. Josiah's frozen. What did I do? Out. Now. A bundle of nerves, Josiah steps out. Turn around and put your hands on the hood. Josiah complies. Pope pats him down. Josiah's breathing grows manic. His whole body shakes. Quit moving. I I can't. Pope withdraws a pair of handcuffs. Josiah flinches instinctively as the metal touches his wrists. Wait, what did I do? I'm not going to tell you again to calm down. What did I do? I didn't do anything. You're resisting. That's what you're doing. Pope and Mac forcefully guide Josiah to the ground, face first. Mac puts his knee in Josiah's back. Please. (coughs) In the distance, Guzman is heard telling Sam. Relax. Pope finishes locking the cuffs. Josiah barely speaks through his gasps for air. I can't. <coughs> you gonna cooperate? <coughs> I can't. Answer me. <coughs> I can't. Josiah's body shakes violently, then is lifeless. Mac raises off of him. He and Pope exchange a fearful look. Hey, Mickelson. Pope kicks Josiah's body. Hey! Pope's voice is gradually replaced by the bartender, bringing Sam back to the present. Hey! Hey! Hey, buddy! The bartender is inches away from Sam's face. You want another drink? Sam shakes his head, still not completely there. Do I need to cut you off? No. I'll cut myself off. (laughs) He rises unsteadily from his stool and makes his way out. In an auto body garage, legs covered in overalls stick out from underneath a car. Squeak Donovan, the owner of said legs, yells from underneath it. Hey, Alan, where did you go for that wrench? The hardware store? He went to get me a Coke. Squeak's legs freeze. He scrambles out from under the car and stands at attention. 
a short, grimy little weasel of a man. Claudia stands at the entrance, twirling a wrench. I was thirsty. Relax, Squeak. I'm not here for you. Uh, engine trouble? You got the trouble part, right? I-, I saw you on the news. Then you know why I'm here. Who is he? What, that voice? <laughs> I don't know. What about the Chechnyan op? I don't know nothing about that either. Every step Claudia takes towards Squeak, he takes one back. I never met a more useful snitch than you, Squeak. You know crime is before the perp thinks to commit them. (laughs) Nothing, nothing about no terrorist. Claudia, I ain't lying to you. After what you've been through, no way. Squeak is now back into a wall with nowhere to go. Claudia searches Squeak's eyes for a hint, a slip-up. After a few seconds, she nods and backs away. I'll let you get back to it then. She holds the wrench out to him. Squeak studies it for a moment, before slowly reaching and taking it out of her hand. As he walks past her, Claudia grips a nerve on Squeak's neck, and he drops to the floor like a sack of potatoes. Claudia presses all her weight onto Squeak's chest, her hand still pinching the nerve. She leans into his ear. I've lost three years of my life and my family, paying for something I didn't start. But don't think for one fucking second that I won't finish it. Claudia rises off of him and leaves. Squeak's buddy Alan, a lanky, confused mechanic, also in overalls, stands with a soda can in his mouth agape at what he just witnessed. Claudia takes the can and looks it over. I said a Coke. She tosses the can back into his hands and hops into her car. In the late afternoon, Sam sits at the counter of a coffee shop across from the Federal Building. He studies it as he slips a flask out of his pocket and pours its contents into his coffee mug. The door chimes and Sam looks up to see Frank enter and take a booth by a window. Sam picks his coffee up, crosses to Frank's booth and takes a seat. Frank barely acknowledges him. Judgment day, am I right? I don't know about you, but I'm not buying that safety net shit. It wouldn't surprise me if we're hung out to dry after this. Frank nods, eyes out the window. You got a family, Frank? No. Want to know if I do? Frank finally looks at him and answers with a shrug. (laughs) I keep thinking there's a magic bullet. Some way to get around this. No. We gotta go straight through. The door chimes again and Claudia enters. She sees Sam's grin go wide and immediately regrets it. Alright, now it's a party. Park it over here, girly. Claudia approaches and takes a seat by Frank instead. Come on, I don't bite. How about when this is all over, we go into witness protection together? I'd rather have a root canal through my asshole. That's not a no. Off Claudia's deadly serious stare, Sam raises his hands in defeat and rises from the table. Alright, this party's lame. I'll see you over there. As he goes, Claudia leaps up and takes his place across from Frank. So, what'd you do? Frank shakes his head. 
The world's about to find out anyway. What did you do? Four years ago, I was assaulted. Three years ago, he was assaulted. Is that it? That's the short version. If you got no secrets, what does this voice want with you? Guess we'll find out. I'm sorry about your daughter. Frank's eyes go wide with an overflow of emotion. Realizing her misstep, Claudia tries to explain. The news did a retrospective on us. He reels the emotion back in and nods in appreciation. We'll get through this. Through the window, Frank and Claudia see an onslaught of news vans pulling up to the federal building's entrance. Give me a break with this. She gestures for Frank to follow her as they slip out a back exit. In the federal building office room, Frank, Claudia, Sam, and Martin sit in front of the monitor. Behind them linger Orson, Brubaker, and Brubaker's assistant, who dons headphones and stares intently at his laptop. On the monitor, the familiar audio wave vibrates in syncopation with the voice's speech pattern. Let me tell you what true law and order looks like. At the elementary school, Nora and other teachers gather around the faculty lounge TV as the news live streams the event, studying the audio wave and whispering amongst themselves. True law and order is a level playing field. At the Chen household, Angela watches the broadcast from the living room couch, unconsciously hugging a throw pillow, transfixed on the tube. All rules are followed. All crimes are punished. At a bar, officers Pope and Guzman watch from their bar stools with intensity. Pope holds his beer close to his mouth, but is too absorbed by the broadcast to sip it. Only when we think we're above the rules and above punishment does society tumble into despair. Frank, Claudia, Martin, and Sam all shift uncomfortably in their seats. You can destroy all the evidence you want. Martin's eyes go wide. How did he know that? You can rough up old acquaintances. Claudia shares Martin's puzzlement. Doesn't matter what I know or who I am. What does matter is that justice prevails. And when it doesn't, there needs to be repercussions. Now, while I'm not going to take your lives, I am going to take your lives away. On the voice's end, a ringing is heard on a speakerphone. Someone answers, and the voice responds. Pick her up. A new level of panic engulfs the room. Brubaker yells to his assistant. Where is this asshole? Wait. Frank holds up a hand and points to the monitor. The audio wave has been replaced with footage from a car's dash cam. You see something familiar? Shout it out. All eyes search the screen with surgical precision. Wait, did they pass a pharmacy? What was that? Come on, you bastard. Give us something. The car pulls to a stop in front of a brownstone. The passenger door is heard opening and closing. The car drives on, taking an on-ramp onto a freeway. As it does, a radio DJ's voice can be heard on a passing truck's radio. What do you say? Isolate that. 
The assistant taps his keyboard, unplugs his headphones for all to hear. Something Billy's? The something meets something. Let's go. The assistant taps keys and the recording replays. Wild Billy's, this guy's in the area. The car passes underneath the freeway sign as it takes an off ramp. The sign, the sign, go back to the sign. The assistant pulls a frozen image of the sign onto his laptop and enhances it. Exit 1. 1D. Exit 1D, Anaheim, 1D. Orson sprints to the office door, swings it open, and yells into the hallway. Get all available units in Long Beach PD to Anaheim Street South off the 710. Damn it. Orson runs back to the monitor, which has gone black. The feed is cut. What? No. He's covering their tracks. The room stares in silence for a moment. Before the dash cam comes back to life, the car now sits in front of an abandoned warehouse. Give me a list of all warehouses within five miles of that exit. Headlights from the car remain on, illuminating the scene as a figure with a hood covering their face and hands bound behind their back kneels before them. The driver's side door opens and shuts. From the left side of the dash cam, the van driver enters the frame. An infuriated Brubaker mutters to himself, Son of a bitch! The van driver reaches for the figure's hood and removes it to reveal Officer Mac Devlin, his mouth gagged. He's sweaty and shaking uncomfortably. Shit! Sam leaps up and sprints from the room. That Officer Devlin? Get that list of all units now. This is code 30. Code 30. The assistant dashes out. Claudia, Frank, Martin, and Orson remain fixed on the screen. The van driver tosses the hood onto the ground. He gestures toward the passenger side of the car. From the right side of the camera's frame enters Rashonda Mickelson. Claudia puts it together before everyone else. Ah, Jesus. The van driver withdraws a gun from his pocket and hands it to Rashonda. Rashonda takes the gun, but her eyes never leave Mac's face. Mac mumbles through the gag, but the words are obvious. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Rashonda pulls the gag down with one hand. What were his last words? Please. I'm sorry. Please. What were they? I don't know. Did he suffer? Don't do this. I just wanted to talk to him. Please. One last. <laughs> I saw. Mac's body drops to the ground. Martin leaps out of his chair. What is this? What is happening? Brubaker searches his mind for the next move. Orson shuts his eyes tight. At the warehouse, police sirens can be heard, inching closer. The van driver rushes Rashonda into the passenger seat and jumps behind the wheel, reversing out of the warehouse parking lot. The feed is cut and replaced by the ominous audio wave as the mysterious voice returns. Now, we begin. That concludes Chapter 1 of No Other Way. I am its creator, James Dinkins. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, please feel free to donate to our production at paypal.me slash dinkinsfilm. That's paypal.me slash d-i-n-k-i-n-s-f-i-l-m. And be sure to follow us on social media at No Other Way Pod. That's No Other Way, P-O-D.
Thank you for listening.